the goal really is how do we how do we push towards progress and make the world a better place for our kids and, and better than how we found it and, and I think that is that to me there's hope for because I really see some some light uh, within the young people that I work with as I teach across the country. You're listening to Find the Good News, Episode 93, The Truth of Our Biases, a Beacon Series conversation featuring Professor Simran Jeetsen. Find the Good News is produced by Parker Brand Creative Services, a branding agency that thinks sideways, pushes forward, and gets your brand up. See what else we do at parkerbrandup.com. Sometimes I feel that I may have made a mistake when I named this podcast. Having a show called Find the Good News sets the precedent that my guests and I must only talk about positive things. While my end goal is to always lean our conversations toward goodness and good works, I realize fully that we can't get there by ignoring the obvious troubles we are facing right now in our world. Intentionally staring deeply into dark chasms filled with brokenness, suffering, despair, and injustice has been a part of my personal journey of awakening and healing since the very beginning. And if you're a regular listener, then you know I walk that path with my guests of this show. The most important part of that companionship is that we walk into those troubled places together in support of one another with an intention to learn from what we see and to bring information out that can be put to good work immediately. My companion into the blight for this episode of Find the Good News is educator, writer, activist, and scholar, Professor Simran Jeet Singh. Simran is regularly on the front line of many conversations regarding issues of diversity, inclusion, and equality. As an American citizen and a devoted Sikh, Simran had to deal with many of these societal biases, only to have those biases strengthened after the September 11th attacks in 2001. During our visit, he offered unique, first-hand perspectives that are honest about the truth of our biases. In a country whose fabric is literally crafted from a manifold array of cultures, colors, and fibers, there is still a very strong tendency for those at the loom to bleach away the beautiful patterns that could emerge. The whitewashing of history in an attempt to remove the stains and pains of the past is a very present reality. As Simran and I discuss, it is absolutely critical that we acknowledge where we've been so we can heal the old multi-generational wounds inflicted by racism, bigotry, and an unwillingness to fully appreciate all the textures of humanity. He allowed me to speak with him openly without judgment. He offered a brother's ear and heartfelt kindness. The cyclical rhythms of injustice and ignorance have resulted in a swelling tidal rage that has crested the levees of apathy. Change is the law, and the flood of outrage that has emerged is a natural result of too much pain and discrimination for far too long. That is why I believe that conversations like the one I had with Simranjit Sin must happen more often. They are happening now. As different as we each may seem on the surface, there is a human kinship and common dream of peace, equanimity, and well-being that can emerge if allies keep finding each other and working together. Visiting with Simran Sin filled me with an unbiased hope that it is possible. Now, it's time to tune your attention to this Good News Beacon and press play on a little good news. Wake up. Morning, dreaming up the story I can hear the way it's going. 
Cause you're laughing in your sleep On the path to your deliverance In a holy ball of light Old news, bad news, fake news. Sometimes you want to shut those signals down and seek a better source. With my Find the Good News Beacon series, I tune into good people doing good works wherever I can find them. I scan across the full spectrum of life, seeking out human beings that have turned their dials towards helping others, aligning their time, resources, and talents with goodness, justice, mercy, and love. In each episode, I sync up with the hearts and minds of my extraordinary guests. We have dynamic conversations that invigorate the mind long after our transmission has ended. I discover the critical life experiences that shape them, the perspectives that drive them, and the fundamental beliefs that have anchored them to a path of goodness. There's a lot of background noise in the world. My name is Oren Parker, and I'm cutting through the static to find the good. Thanks for taking the time to do this. It sounds like you're a, a very busy man these days. Oh, no, it's my pleasure. Um, yeah, the busyness mostly comes from the kids. So, If you don't mind, before we get started, I'd love it if you could just give a quick introduction to my listeners, and then we'll jump right in from there. Sure, yeah. Um, my name is Simranjit Singh. I'm a scholar and activist and a writer uh, and a dad <laughs> uh, based in New York. Um, grew up in grew up in San Antonio, Texas, and um, and moved to New York about ten years ago, uh, where I you know was doing my graduate school, and uh, and stuck around ever since. And you know I've been really uh, enamored by this city in terms of you know my my focus on uh, justice and faith, uh, and and really just finding. Uh, connections with people. So so I really enjoyed living here. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's a short little introduction to myself. Yeah, well, what a time to be living there too, right? I mean, you're right in the thick of things. Uh, I have a couple of friends who live in New York City, and I, they've been my New York State and New York City, and they've been kind of my, I guess, my information lines. You know, I get a couple of different snapshots from them. I live down on the Gulf Coast, so I'm down at the 30 minutes from the Gulf in Louisiana. So I'm, I'm always yeah, okay. in, interested, you know, to bring different perspectives down here. We don't have a lot of uh, signals like this one down here. So the bulk of my listeners are coming out of Texas and Louisiana, all across Mississippi. And, and you know, that whole I, Interstate 10 corridor down here. And what I'm hearing yeah. is that we might be... Uh, <laughs> I guess like a nail house, so to speak, bringing this type of information uh, to that area. And I, I didn't realize that until we started doing it. So I'm always looking to talk to people like you. I, I discovered your new podcast, uh, Becoming Less Racist, which I thought was an interesting title. The, the title is uh, intentionally provocative. And um, part of it for me, I think, is uh, it comes from my own... Uh, shift in thinking about it. You know, I grew up uh, in Texas, and uh, and pretty much the worst thing you call anybody was a racist, right? Like, mm. it's a it's a it's a super loaded term. It's really offensive, and and the moment you the moment you say it, all conversation shuts down. And so it's it's not a term that I ever threw around or or even used until until really. Um, 
coming across some some thinkers who have taught me to to let down my own defenses and to deal with uh, some of the racist ideas that have come up in my own head. And um, it was, I mean, that process was really uncomfortable. <laughs> I didn't like it. Uh-huh. Um, I, like you, your listeners can't see me. I'm, I'm a brown skinned dude. You know, my parents immigrated from India. Uh, I wear a turban. I have a beard. So like I've been on the receiving end of racism my whole life. And it was really shocking to me to realize, you know what, even even though I've been subjected to racism, I'm just as guilty as other people when it comes to, to internalizing the ideas all around me. So I guess the point is, and this is kind of like the, the emphasis of, of the approach, um, if we can let down our defenses and, and be a little bit more open about, and, and a little bit more comfortable about the fact that like, we we're not inherently racist. There's nothing that 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 makes us racist aside from the messages we get from the society around us. So if if we learn to be racist, then we can unlearn it, mm-hmm. and and that's the process. Like that's a super empowering idea. The first time I came across it, I was like, oh, I have some control over this. Like I I can do this, and so so that's kind of what I want to do. I want to invite people into the conversation in a way that feels comfortable as opposed to um, as opposed to shutting them out and being like, you know, you're wrong and you're uh, whatever, whatever we associate with racism, right? You're ignorant, you're dumb, you're right. hateful. Like that, I think that shuts down the conversation. So that's what I'm trying to change a little bit. I'm glad to hear that. You know, that's something that I've noticed too, because I want to have conversations about these types of things, but you're right. Saying, even just saying the word racism, you can I can see it visibly in the people around me, whether that be uh, professionally or whether that's in my family. And I'm not talking about maybe my immediate family, like my wife and my children. But, you know, you start drawing those rings around your life and I can see where these conversations are very uncomfortable. And I want to have those conversations because partly I feel like I'm having them with myself. And, and you've opened the door to that, to where you can have um, a concern or a question and say, look, I don't know. Uh, I'm, I'm navigating this territory that I've never really went in before. And how do we change things without taking the time to navigate that? It, if I could share a story with you, I'm kind of putting this yep. out there because it was something I shared with my wife, you know, we when... Uh, a few weeks ago, we were having these conversations with our children, and it, and it recalled some things from when I was a young man. When I, when I say young man, I was a boy in high school, and we had went on our senior trip. And, you know, I never considered that all of my friends were white. You know, I never even thought about it. But I had one friend who was a black a black man. Like, like you know, it was just nothing I thought about. You know, I did never think of him as my black friend, but he was in our group. But when we went on our senior trip, we went on a canoeing trip and we were out in, we'd been out for three or four days camping together and, you know, eating the same food. Everyone was just kind of sharing things. And, uh, we had a bunch of canteens. Well, later that night, one of my friends, we were sitting on the canoe and the sun was going down. And he said to me, he said, Hey man, can I talk to you about something? It's on my mind. And I was like, sure. And he goes, earlier when we were drinking out of the canteens, he said, did you notice that we all drank out of, and I'll spare my friend his name, but he said, well, you know, did you notice we all drank out of his canteen too? And I said, yeah, I didn't even think about it. 
and he got really quiet and he looked at me and he was, he had tears in his eyes and he said, you know, I think that's the first time I've ever drank out of a container with a black person. And it was, this, I, I, I could feel myself wanting to weep. And I, and there was so much being said in that moment, but we didn't get into this big conversation, but it was like this heart space where we, it hit us both that that shouldn't be extraordinary, but it was extraordinary. You know what I'm saying? And those are the times yeah. of conversations that I want to keep having because it reminds me that there's this undertone of racism, I guess. And in a way, I guess we didn't realize it. It wasn't like active racism. It was like passive racism. And we us just drinking out of the same container with this person that we had been calling our friend. But because it, the, he was a black man, it was extraordinary and it affected us in some way even though a lot was unsaid and i don't know sharing that story do, do you read anything into that as i when you hear that kind of story no i mean i i think i i have experiences like that and i think i think we all do in different ways and i think um you know we we don't all have it in, in terms of race but we have it in different ways where um we are we are not in the majority uh, group in society, right? And that might be, uh, it could be anything, right? It could be on the basis of your political beliefs. It could be on the basis of uh, what sports team you prefer or like yeah. who you support. Um, but like, you know, I grew up in San Antonio. Imagine, imagine the sort of alienation that comes with being a Lakers fan in San Antonio. <laughs> like, like you, know, you didn't have much. So, um, what, what I'm trying to say is like, you don't really notice this kind of stuff until you experience it firsthand or until someone tells you. And I think that's the difference here. And so like, I'll give you an example from my life. Like I, a really similar kind of story where, you know, I, I was growing up again, turban, beard, brown skin. Right. Uh, and I was in high school when nine 11 happened mm. and um, and, and things got really ugly with the racist backlash and people who look like me were targeted. And, um, and one time, you know, a, a couple years afterwards, I posted on Facebook, I just had this really annoying experience at airport security where they, you know, subjected me to additional screening and all the kind of typical stuff. Right. Uh, and I posted it and, and my best friend from high school called me and he was like, man, I'm so sorry that happened to you. I didn't know. And I was like, what do you mean you didn't know? Like, this is, <laughs> this is my whole life. Like, right. like, I believe that you don't know that, that, that my life is like this and, and we're so close. And, and so it was this like really interesting moment of realizing our disconnection, even though we were super tight. Yeah. And he was a white dude, right? Like, so, so like, of course he wouldn't know unless I told him. And that's what he told me. And he was like, I, I, how, how was that? Like, how am I supposed to know? You don't talk to me about this kind of stuff. And I, you know, I typically didn't, I, I never really shared this kind of stuff with people because I, I didn't want to, and I didn't know how to. Um, but his, his point was fair too, right? Like the way that you, the way that I know how to show up for you, like I, he was like, I care about you. I want to show up for you. I just need to know what's going on. Yeah. And once he, once he like opened my eyes to that, since then, I've been an open book, right? Like, I don't really 
shy away from sharing stuff. And I don't think it's, you know, I don't, I don't think it's everybody's job to do that. Uh, but at least for me, it's, it's this really interesting, similar story of, of what you experienced that day, which is like, even just sharing with someone the kinds of things we experience that can open up all kinds of perspectives that people just don't have otherwise. Right. So that can be, that can be super powerful and, and change the way we see one another. Yeah. I know. I totally get what you're saying right there because your friend, it illustrates in that story. It's very much like what my friend and I were experiencing. It's like, well, we don't, you know, you don't know that you're carrying this thing around or you don't know that you're even carrying ignorance around. To be honest, you don't think about it. You know, I mean, I like to think I'm pretty. I don't want to use this word. I'm going to use it in a jovial way, but a little I like to I like to think of myself as kind of a woke person. Right. I like to think of myself as somebody who uh, sees past, you know, religion, uh, color, you know, political ideologies, whatever these little markers are. I'd like to think that. But man, when you crash into it, it's something that's so it's the small stuff, right? That's the stuff that is really insidious to me. Like I was actually talking to my wife about this the other day. I said, you know, when we're driving around at night and you see and you imagine a, a man maybe acting or walking towards your vehicle or acting strangely in your imagination, what color is that man? You know what I mean? Like those little mental imagination exercises, it's like that, for me, they're very revealing. It's like, oh, wow. You know, <laughs> what What are the things that pop up? And it's like a, a seed that you don't know is there just sort of lurking underneath, right? And I think in a way, it's like what you said about 9-11. I mean, you you know you you're you're saying oh yeah i fit the uh i fit the the uniform of the opposing team right i'm wearing what people would assume the opposing team wears and that right, triggers right, people exactly. does that make sense the way i'm i'm laying that out there and so it gets triggered by this stuff that's under the surface that people don't even know they're picking up from culture and and entertainment and news articles it's all just sort of saturating and soaking in leaving this stuff behind and then when an event happens or there's something going on it just triggers it all and it, it almost like they, they they pull together to me and like begin to grow really rapidly and create these nodes of fear almost yeah yeah totally and i think actually that's why i think that's why my personal example is a good one right because we we learn as as a society we learn pretty quickly how to hide from ourselves, mm. the truth of our biases. Yeah, we'll tell ourselves, you know, I'm not. I, you know, I tell myself that, and then, and then those kinds of questions you would just ask, of like, just close your eyes and imagine, imagine someone dangerous, and and what, what, where does your mind go? Right. Like that's 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 really revealing, and I think you know my own appearance is also reveal. It's it's a little bit easier to to get to that place because, you know, there's no doubt for all of us where we get the ideas that someone who looks like me uh, is dangerous or mm. the enemy mm -hmm. or someone on the other team, like you were saying, right? So like, it's a little bit obvious because we've, we've been conscious of how we've been taught uh, to fear yeah. my particular uh, identity group. And so that, I think that's, it's a really interesting thing you're pointing out here. And like, 
again, for me, it all goes back to this idea that we shouldn't be ashamed individually of the fact that we have these negative biases because one, we all do. So it's not like we're alone in these feelings or these, or or these ideas inside of us, but two, it's not, it's not our fault, right? Like it's, it's the, it's the messaging we get from society around us. And I think it's, it's only our fault when we finally realize it and we choose to do nothing about it. Right. Like that's where I'm like, that's messed up. Yeah. Um, you know, you have these like ideas of, of other people that are wrong and you're still living by them. Like I, I, that to me is unacceptable. Right. But, but until we get to that point, like I think it's really important for us to help one another uh, see some of these, these ways that we, that we really dehumanize one another. And like, I, I, I believe really strongly that when we do that, we all, we all end up hurting more, including, including those of us who are doing the dehumanizing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think at, at, at this point, I actually, if you don't mind, I'd like to address, I don't think we have yet what the listeners can't see is that you're, you're a Sikh, right? So, I mean, your appearance these these markers that are triggering to some uh, come from your religion, right? I mean, you wear a turban, you have a beard. Uh, you know, there are things that the culture art of this. Um, I don't even know anymore what to call this, but there is a certain perspective that looks on those things as symbols, and they immediately associate that with something else, and they don't take that time to really go, "Hey, what what am I seeing here? What does that mean?" Am I correct? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, in, in some of my writing, I, I describe this as the racialization of religious identity, meaning ah. that, like, these, these aspects of my appearance, my, my uncut hair, my turban, my beard, like, those are part of my religious appearances, right? It's not about race. Right. Uh, but then racialize them and say, based on based on what I see in that person, like those markers, like mm-hmm. I'm going to make an association. That's, and that's racism, right? Like it's, yep. it's hard to figure out what to call it exactly, but that's how racism works, right? Yep, we see people, we just, and so, and so that's, I think that's, that's an important part of my experience growing up. And like, even today, I spent most of today dealing with uh, a hate crime in New Mexico where some, some people went into a, Six-owned restaurant uh, in New Mexico, uh, in Santa Fe, and just trashed the place. Uh, they did a hundred thousand dollars worth of damage in the restaurant, and they also, all over the walls, put racial slurs, mm. um, uh, including you know calling these folks ISIS and you know some words that I'd rather not right. repeat. Um, but yeah, this is this is a, a very real part of our experience in this country that people perceive us in a certain way based on their stereotypes and then and then act accordingly and it's not it's not always pretty you know i read that story in fact i think i i saw it through your twitter feed and you know the more i read into it the more really sad the whole thing is because there was part of that story that just broke my heart honestly i mean i had to stop for a minute and just I'll, truthfully, I, it, I was more disgusted that someone had to even do this than I was almost at the acts that were done recently. But it was the story about how the owner's mother had made him a red, white, and blue turban after 9-11 to try to, I guess, take some of the pressure off of the attacks and bullying that he was receiving. And I thought, how 
sad it is that some people have to do these extra things that I don't have to do. I don't have to get up and wear an American flag. You know what I mean? I mean, to let people know that I'm an American. But there are other Americans out there who have to live like that and you have to constantly prove themselves over and over again. And it still doesn't work. It's kind of, it's really just a sad thing and it's all just, it's appearance based. It's, it's hard to comprehend, honestly. Yeah, really. I mean, it really is. And it's like, you know, I, I've been doing this work, um, you know, on the front lines of hate violence for, you know, 15 years now. Um, and it's still like I, I saw this story last night of this of this family in this restaurant in in New Mexico, and I couldn't sleep at night. And I just kept thinking of like I, I can't I can't even imagine, right? Because I was born and raised in the states, and mm-hmm. you know my parents immigrated. I, I I didn't I couldn't even imagine what it would feel like if you uh, like pinned your entire life, like your dream, on moving to this country, expecting to be uh, treated with dignity, um, and then to end up in a position where people have no idea who you are. They don't care enough to ever learn. Um, and then whenever things get ugly or push comes to shove, um, or for whatever reason, like whatever, whatever triggered these, these folks to do this, to do this hateful act, like, (laughs) yeah, it's, it's just like, how painful would that be? I can't even imagine. I can't either. Um, so it's been, bugging me today. And, and that same thing you're saying is, is something I've been struggling with for years. I mean, so, so there's this, there's this story that has stuck with me for much of my life. Four days after 9-11, um, a sick man in, in Arizona, Mesa, Arizona, just outside of Phoenix, uh, was murdered in a, in a very similar sort of attack mm. uh, where the person who killed him had all sorts of racial slurs to offer. Um, and earlier that day, you know, actually he, earlier that day, he was, he went to a Costco to buy American flags to to plant outside of his gas station. So people would not see him as, as an enemy, but Mm -hmm. see him as an American. So (laughs) really similar. And then, and then the other, the other parallel there is when he was at the Costco, uh, this man who was killed, Bobir Singh Sordi, uh, he saw the, um, the 9-11 Ground Zero uh, First Responders Fund uh, at the cash register, and he just took out his wallet and emptied it out. Wow. Like that, that was the that was like the heart of generosity that this man had. And very similar, um, the case in New Mexico today. The the uh, like one of the things that was uh, damaged and stolen was uh, every week they used to deliver care packages to the to the homeless in in Santa Fe. Um, and, and, you know, just this very similar sort of spirit of generosity that just, yeah, you look at these people and you're like, they, they, they just care. Like that's all they, that's all they do. They live with love and service and uh, those are their values. And uh, it's a beautiful thing. And all of a sudden uh, someone sees those turbans on their heads and they see the exact opposite, right? Like they see, instead of love and service, they see uh, hate and terrorism. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's this horrible dissonance that we have between what we stand for and how people see us. And and it's not something that I, that I know how to resolve. Yeah. I I was, that was actually one of my questions that's just lurking around because I mean, as someone who deals with this on the front line for 15 years, 
you know, this is your world and you've seen, you've seen this thing rear its ugly head in every possible way. It's like a Hydra though, you know, you deal with one and then, you know, two more grow back. And I, I, I know it's got to be hard work. I mean, I, I, I am guilty of falling into despair, but on the flip side, I guess I do have hope. And sometimes it's just seen in the children, you know, I mean, I, I am, I know that for immediate change, that's not the answer, but I think in the long plan, I do hope that it's always with the children. And I I do want to believe that there are good beings out there that are raising their children. I mean, my, even my youngest son, you know, over the last few weeks, we've been having a lot of conversations more direct than we've had in the past. And he goes to a school where he is really there. It's predominantly white. So most boys look like him, but I asked him, you know, do you have any black boys that go to your school or black girls that you're friends with? And he kind of looked at me like quizzically, like he didn't really fully understand what I was asking him. You could tell. And so we had to be more specific about the skin color because he was thinking black, like a black crayon. And I was like, okay, well we started being more descriptive and he goes, Oh yeah. And he said the little boy's name and he mentioned a little girl and we were asking if anybody ever, you know, treated them differently or if he ever felt like he wanted that he treated them differently. And he was just like, he almost looked at, he made this face like, no, like y'all are crazy for asking me. It's a dumb question. It was very funny to him that we were sort of digging. And so we ended that, you know, we kind of ended the conversation because we realized that we're almost going to make it worse for him because he's not, indoctrinated yet into the culture that was going to teach him about this and that and us and them. And so we realize it's our job to continue to expose our kids to other people, other cultures. So they enjoy the variety of flavors of humanity and religion and culture, you know? So when they are exposed, they don't see immediately something different as the enemy. I just hope I really do that. There are more and more people that are, doing that yeah I'm, I'm 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 with you and then i'm also um skeptical about that too right because okay and i'm 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 i'm, I'm an optimistic person by nature and so i'm i'm constantly looking for the silver linings um i'm looking for the good stuff you know even even right before we hopped on this call um i i posted this thing on twitter along along the lines of Along the story of of all the negative, like I, I was just feeling people were getting too upset about the New Mexico mm. hate crime. Um, I and I just posted a bunch of messages that I'd received from people uh, asking how they could help. And, and my point was like, remember, as, as demoralizing as it is to see the negative, uh, there's a lot more good out there than than bad. There's a lot more love than hate, and I, I truly believe that. So. So I'm totally with you there, especially as I think about my own kids and, and you know, your your story about your son, which is just so touching um, to think of that innocence. And then on the other hand, I look at um, what's happening in our country mm, right now yeah. and, and seeing how polarized people are and how unwilling we are to deal with some of our longest standing, ugliest um, sins as a nation, yeah. right around racism, and and that while I'm grateful that we're that we're pushing these conversations in a way that I haven't seen in my lifetime, it also um, it's hard to imagine that 
will come to a resolution anytime in the near future. Right. And, and what I mean that is like this stuff is like the, the, the deeper we dig, the more we realize how entrenched it is mm. uh, in our society and also within our own, within our own ways of thinking. And then I'm like, oh, <laughs> how, how do we ever get to a point where this is gone? I mean, I think, I think the point is, and, and I think the, the goal for me is, we don't have to fix everything. Right. And, and I think that's true about the world in general, that there's, you know, Jesus couldn't fix all the problems of the world. Mm-hmm. Muhammad couldn't fix it, resolve all the problems in the world. The Buddha couldn't, Martin Luther King, like whoever you name as like the, the greatest people to walk on this earth, the problems are still here. And so it's un, unreasonable for us to expect that we'll do that. Um, but the goal really is how do we, how do we push towards progress and make, the world a better place for our kids and, and better than how we found it. And, and I think that is that to me, there's hope for, because I really see um, some, some light uh, within the young people that I work with as I teach across the country. And I'm happy. I know it. I'm I hate to pause the program, but I want to ask you something. Did you know that you can help me and my team at Parker brand creative services grow the find the good news signal? For less than a fancy cup of coffee, you can become an Early Risers Club patron on our Patreon page. What's Patreon? Well, it's a way for creators to fund their projects by pooling support from those really passionate people that believe in what they're doing. Do you believe in what we're doing with Find the Good News? I hope you do. We believe that there's already enough negative news in the world, even right here at home, and that good people doing good works deserve a platform to speak from too. That's why we created Find the Good News, and we believe in that simple mission. Maybe you believe in it too. If you do believe in finding and sharing good news, then head over to our Patreon page right now or check out the link in the show description. For a commitment of $3.33 a month, you can join the Early Risers Club of Find the Good News Patreon supporters and get access to the B-Sides, a patrons-only podcast with the crew behind Find the Good News, Parker Brand Creative Services. Each time we level up, the Patreon rewards will get bigger. If you're tired of old news, bad news, and fake news, help support Find the Good News at patreon.com slash findthegoodnews. That's patreon.com slash findthegoodnews. Now, back to the episode. Yeah, I think you're you and I are probably on the same page with that. I, you know, I've have some pretty painful conversations with pretty close family members that really reveal to me how deeply rooted it is as well. And and honestly, there's there's even people that are close to me that have drawn lines in the sand there. They've said things to me like, I'm just ready for this Black Lives Matter thing to just go away. And I'm like, ah, okay, uh, that's not what this is. <laughs> this isn't a a storm that's going to pass. This is critical. This is a major shift that needs to happen. What you're, what they're advocating is, let's just put a bandaid on this so everything goes back to whatever normal is until the next time, you know, and that's not a good way to think. And I see a lot of people thinking like that. And it's similar to the way that I see a lot of people in my community thinking, uh, behaving about the COVID-19. It's sort of a similar 
mentality. They just want to move on. And it's not that way. And and the way I've kind of felt about all of this is exactly as you said, you know, it's almost like a cyst under the skin. And we, and we have as a country, we keep trying to bury these, these horrible things, the, all the blood and suffering that we built this country on, all the countless number of lives, you know, that have been really lost and damaged and, and trauma over gener- many generations. And like a cyst, I mean, it builds up under the skin and eventually that skin ruptures. I mean, and I feel like right now what we're seeing is that we're at a, a rupturing point, you know, and, and, and it's not going to heal until the rupturing is done. And it does kind of feel like we may someday move towards healing, but we're in the midst of that maybe long-term rupturing. It just, that's kind of the way I feel about it. It's not going away tomorrow. This is not, it needs to be ruptured and then healed. You got to put a bomb on it after the rupturing. You don't, you know, just cover it up. Right, right, exactly. And, and, and the other thing about, you know, a wound analogy is that it takes time. Yeah. Um, right. You have, to have, you have to have the patience, but you know, you, uh, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta deal with, you gotta deal with these problems. And I, you know, I, I'm, it's really interesting to, that this is happening around the same time as COVID because, um, I think a lot of us were having similar reflections, mm. um, when the pandemic hit, which was like, we really, we're really tired of, of sitting at home. Um, we're ready to go back to normal. And then as we're sitting at home and, and, you know, being socially isolated and all those things, we're thinking about, oh, well, there's actually some, there's actually something I'd like to change and keep different, something that, I, that I've enjoyed about this time or yeah. something, that, something that I realized wasn't so perfect about my life before that I'd like to change. And like that to me, like here's the opportunity both with COVID and with the racial justice protests is like we realize that we get to define what's normal. And like we, we usually take it for granted. It takes a collective sort of moment to, to make that rede- redefinition. But like, you know, if you decide post COVID that you want to work remotely, that's, that's a totally different normal now than it was before. Right. And like the, the, the creativity we can have in this moment to reshape what we want our communities to look like. You know, if you're sitting here and, you know, I, I, I definitely am sitting here, so I'll speak for myself. Like, if I'm sitting here in this moment of reckoning with racial inequity and I'm like, yo, I can have an opportunity to change the day-to-day racism that I feel every day. Of course, I'm, of course I'm going to take you up on that. And, like, I like my life before and I want to go back to normal so that I can kind of watch, watch my basketball and go out to my restaurants and all that kind of stuff. Like, yes, I want that too. Uh, but if at the same time we can get rid of some of the ugliness, yeah, Mm -hmm. give me, give me that as well, because that's, that's going to make for a much healthier society for everyone. That's a actual, that's a wonderful segue into something that I did not know until I was doing some research before our conversation. And that's your book. And I I found an article when I was, uh, you know, doing my, my Google stalking as it were. And I found an article called writing the book I wanted to read. And I thought that was just fantastic. So you wrote a book 
which I think is a great way to change things, uh, you know, because being showing other cultures, especially for children, for them to be represented in the books that are on the shelves and in media, that's a great tool. But it was something that I think you're, you you put out there that your daughter said about maybe the picture on the book. I don't know if I'm yeah. I'm on the right track, but if you could share that, that was just maybe tell me about the book and and what your daughter said. I just loved it so much. Oh yeah, sure. So so my book is uh, it's a it's a children's book about um, one of my uh, uh, inspirations and, and heroes in life. He's the oldest person to ever run a marathon, so he's a hundred years old when he crossed the finish line. Um, and that was the day I signed up for my first marathon because I was like, I have no more excuses if you could do it at a hundred. So he like, you know, he changed my life and, and as I've learned about him, um, the more I learned, the more amazed I was by his story. And, you know, part of his story, part of why I was attracted to him is because he, he also comes from the Sikh religion, and so he wears a turban and beard, too. And and part of the reason he did what he did um, was to to bring attention to the racism uh, that a lot of us experience. Um, and he thought, you know, this is a platform that I can have, and if I can create some positive uh, attention uh, for people who are perceived as um, you know, all these, all these negative things like that would be a great contribution. And so that's, that's where I got turned on to him. And eventually I decided to write a children's book about him. Um, and, and part of the reason I wanted to do a children's book, like it had been my dream since I was growing up in Texas that my friends would one day see a picture book or any book with someone who looked like my family and, and be like, Oh, they're not as, <laughs> they're not as weird as I thought, or they're <laughs> right. not as boring. They're not as, right. Like just to, just to make us somewhat normal in, in their eyes. And so I remember thinking that as a kid. And then 30 years later, uh, when my daughter was born, uh, nothing had changed. Like the, there, there was still no book like that, that I could pick up for her. And so I was like, okay, it's time for me to start doing this. That's great. Um, and so, and so I did it, and and you know the the book is uh, coming out shortly. Uh, it's called "For Justin Keeps Going," and, and I got the prints from the publisher, um, like the uh, with the, with the the book, but not bound or anything. Um, and I was reading it to her the, the day that it came in. I you know we sat in her bed before bedtime, and um, and she looked at it, and and uh, three or four pages in. Um, there's this there's this illustration of of Fujessing doing his daughter's hair, um, and and she sees that and she got so excited and she was like, oh my god, that's that's like you and me every morning, oh, and <laughs> that moment for me, like it's it's kind of like a uh, a cheesy <laughs> a cheesy movie moment, but yeah. it was like you was dreaming of since my childhood where like she saw me and herself and was like, Oh, this is, this is like what a hero looks like. Like yeah. my dad looks like bro from a book. And so that to me, like in a world where we're getting bombarded with the opposite kinds of messages about certain people, right. Including for my daughter, uh, who I know will be growing up with messages about, about her dad looking a certain way. And, you know, I'm sure that she'll be uh, embarrassed of me and ashamed of me at some point, but, you know, <laughs> I have to go to school 
that's dropping me off and he looks different and all this kind of stuff. Like, Oh man, to, to know that she's getting some positive message from somewhere like that's total yeah. game changer, man. I'm, I'm going to full disclosure. I mean, listening to you tell it, I, I know I've read that online, but listening to you tell that, I mean, my, my heart just opens up, man. And my eyes begin to water because it's, it's, it's spiritual at that point for me. I mean, listening to you say that because that that's the hope I'm talking about right there. I mean, I know it's, it may be small in the scope of everything that's going on, but that to me is in that moment. Like when you hear your daughter say that, I kind of try to put myself in your position and I'm like the history of all your ancestors in that moment, you know, are with you. And it's like, ah, oh, this is just a moment of change right here. Just this little moment. It is change and it's good change. And I, I love that. I mean, that that's a something I truly and deeply believe in is the momentum of change. I've always say, say change is the law. We cannot escape it, but we can work with it. You know, it's, it's a momentum that we yep. can utilize. And I, I see that right now. And I've, I've read things that you've posted out there in articles that where you've said similar things, you know, working with this time. Uh, and you even said that earlier is, is really, there's an energy to it that we may not get again if we don't grasp it. And I think that might be why we're seeing so much activity, you know, but this book is just a shining light. Just that story alone. <laughs> it's wonderful. It really is. Yeah, I, I appreciate I appreciate all those kind words, and um, it makes me think about your question earlier about about optimism and and about kids being the future and, and what that might look like. And I think, I mean, what what I'm really thinking about as I as I reflect on your comments there and how it relates to this story is like um, one of the things I see as I teach college students. Um, is that they get this stuff a lot better than, than I did as a kid. Like, uh, I wasn't taught um, a lot of the things that they know so much better than I did. And, and, and I think that's progress. And I think as we're working to change our cultural, our, our pop culture, right? Like, so, so we have a lot more movies that uh, are told about different kinds of people from different backgrounds, whether it's, you know, racial or religious or national or whatever. Right. So like these kinds of things there, you're right. Like the book is an example. It's a microcosm of these micro changes that we're seeing. Mm -hmm. um, if you add all those up and like my daughter is growing up in a world that's way different than the world that I grew up in, where I didn't have access to the kinds of stories uh, that they do. And that totally changes your ability to, uh, see the humanity and the people you encounter. Like that's, that's a really big difference. And I, I appreciate you pointing that out. I'm glad you just said that because I mean, I, I'm a big advocate of, uh, religious studies. I think that to me has been the door to being more open to other cultures. Religion has been a wonderful way to see some of the best parts of the global community. And, just that alone, like when, when the first, you know, when I was in high school and I heard the word seek first, I would have heard it and I wouldn't have known how to spell it. That's the truth. I mean, I would have had to have went to the library to 
hopefully asked somebody to point me in the right direction. And maybe they would have pointed me to a religion, a, a dictionary or, or a world religions book. And then I might've got a, a couple of paragraphs, right? Right. Right. But now I live in a world where if I see somebody wearing a turban has a beard and I even am halfway curious or I have the motivation to say, Hey, I want to know what's going on with that. I don't understand what I'm seeing. I can go online and and go to learnreligions.com, type that in and get, you know, a hundred articles with photographs and videos and interviews, go on YouTube and do that. And you can learn. I mean, that's something that's so different. And I, I, I love that now. I mean, anything that I don't understand, I can go, oh, I, I, I'm curious about just this one thing. Now I can go pluck that string and get this whole vibe, you know, and our kids have that. And I see that in my teenage son, just as you said about college, the college age kids. I mean, he is so different than I am. I mean, he's, he's where I wish I'd have been at 30, you know, as at 17. Right. And I'm like, wow, because they have his access to information and he's encouraged to go find out more. Uh, now that can be bad too, I guess, depending on who's, your mentor, you know, I mean, you have bad mentorship yeah, that can lead yeah. you down. That's exactly how evil works too, I suppose, or, or hate maybe. It is, but I, I think there's something. So certainly like one of the things I've learned that, um, that that's been really important to me is like having more information doesn't make us better people, mm, right? Like we're, right. we have more information generation before us and we're <laughs> we're still pretty messed up <laughs> right, and so right. that's yeah um but but here's here's what i hear you saying and i and i and i find a lot of power in it i find a lot of truth in it that one of the ways that i measure um people's maturity is their ability to deal with difference Mm. Right. Like, are you able to accept the fact that someone thinks differently than you and not try and push your own opinions on them? Um, are you able to to live with that difference and respect it? And, and again, like it could be with anything. Can you can you manage to be friends with someone who supports another team and, and you know, you sit down and watch the football game with them anyway? Right. Um, like you have maturity to do that. And so. One of the one of the things that our generation, um, like we didn't we didn't get to really experience this in the same way as our kids are, because they're dealing with a lot more difference at once, and so the the opportunity to cultivate maturity from a young age, um, right? Like, and 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 where that really comes in in the cultural conversations is for our kids, um, are they? Do, are, are they able to deal with racial difference? Are they able to deal with uh, gender identity? Are they able to deal with sexual orientation? Like those are big questions where religion really comes in as something interesting for me is that it presents, you know, studying and dealing with people of different religions. Like you have no choice uh, but to grapple with the fact that people believe things that are different from you. Right. right? Like if you are, if you're dealing with people who are, of a different race or a different gender, like you could still have the same worldview. Uh, you can still have the same basic principles, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. When, you have, when you're dealing with people of, with religious difference, you have to come to terms with the fact that not everybody 
believe the same things as you do and that they're still good people somehow. And that's a hard thing to do, but to do so uh, really brings in this aspect of maturity and humility, right? Like you have to make, see the world as not being all about you. Uh, and I think there's so much growth that happens through that. And, and I see young people doing that now. And that's, that's super inspiring to me. God, that is inspiring to me. And you know, it's interesting. I listened to another podcast you were on and I, I was, you were explaining what the turban means as a Sikh. And I didn't know this. And as I was listening to you explain it, uh, my my imagination began to wander because I'm sort of a religious mutt. I think I've I've practiced and read so much at this point in the last few couple of decades that I I don't even know what what f- door I've got my foot in any given day. It's almost like a grab bag. It's like what applies in my life at the moment. But when I was listening to you talk about the e- equal divinity. Uh, the equal presence of God and everyone being the same in that regard, theologically, and the turban being a a symbol of royalty in that regard. And I hope I'm saying this right. Please stop me if I'm butchering this. I'm impressed. I, I loved that because I thought a Sikh wearing a turban through that theology looks back at me, who is not a Sikh, not wearing a turban, but sees a turban. Does that make sense the way I said that? Yeah, yeah, totally. No, I think it's it's a it's a really interesting perspective because it's it's not one that I've heard before. Um, but it but it does make sense and I think there's there's this real beauty within within the sick tradition. It's part of what I love about about this faith in particular, um, is that it gives you a way of looking at the world with with enough um, maturity um, and enough humility to be able to see difference and and see that difference as not something threatening um, or something that is um, averse to your own being, but actually something that's complementing, something that is, uh, in, in the words of our gurus, something that's an equal manifestation of divinity as, as anything yeah. else. So we're taught to believe that everyone we encounter and everything we see in the world is divine. Mm. Um, and when you truly do that, then like, then like your entire experience of the world is different because yeah. there's no, I mean, there's like no, there's no way to ever justify discrimination if you, if you, if you, if you truly see the world that way. I mean, in fact, hearing you say that, I mean, it's got me that, that just churns so much up in me because I, Imagine, I'm saying this to all my listeners right now who are not Sikhs and who maybe have encountered someone who is a Sikh and didn't really know what, who they were encountering, to even be looked upon by somebody who believes that means you're being looked upon in a divine light. I mean, you look at me and you look at other people and see the light of God in them. And that is a beautiful thing because there are some people walking around who maybe are never looked upon that way. They're never looked upon as, or they don't feel it, but at least with the Sikh as the, with the turban, especially, and I'm using that as a symbol because symbols are so important to people. You see that, know that, that that being that's looking upon you looks upon you as, as 
a part of the divine as with the divine light of God in them. That's a beautiful thing to know that you could have the potential to be looked upon that way. It's, it's life changing actually. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a cool, it's a cool reflection uh, again, because, you know, I, it's almost like I take it for granted and that I, well, it's not that I would say it's, it's going back to your example of, of, um, of your black friend from childhood and, mm. and sharing that, that, that drink. Um, it's almost like this experience of, you know, I know my side of the, the experience because that's what I live. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I don't, I'm not thinking about it from, from your perspective as, as an outsider to my world, as someone who's not wearing a turban and seeing someone, right. So like, that's really interesting. I think, um, one of the, it, it one of the other things that I'm thinking about as, as you're speaking is like, just reflect for a moment on the incredible irony of what the turban means to me as a symbol um, in terms of what you're describing, right? Like it, it implies the like most beautiful form of openness and connection uh, and love that, that you can imagine, right? Like that's what the Sikh faith teaches and juxtapose that with the kinds of assumptions that people have about what the turban means. Like to most people, they see me and, you know, I, I know this because they tell me and, and I hear it from friends uh, who were skeptical when they first met me. And, you know, I hear all sorts of stuff. Like most people, when they first see me, they presume um, that I am close-minded, that I'm an extremist, um, that I am socially conservative, like all these sorts of assumptions yeah. well up, right? Um, again, we know why. Um, it's it's tied to the assumptions around terrorism, but even like just the fact that I'm publicly religious uh, indicates to people in their own minds, at least, it indicates to them that I am uh, that I'm extremist in my views and that I'm intolerant of other perspectives or beliefs, right? And nothing could be further from the truth. I, I like to think that I'm, I'm the opposite in that regard, but it's a hard thing for people to wrap their heads around. I, this is a fascinating direction our conversation's taken because I, I'm, I'm thinking as I'm listening to you, you're just jarring loose so many interesting thoughts that I've never really shared before because I think about symbols all the time and how important they are to us. And listening to you say that, it makes me think about a little short story I'll share. Uh, For a short period of time, I was a practicing Catholic. And during that time, I I really was attracted to the uh, pectoral cross that Pope Francis wears. I knew it was different than his predecessors. And so I did a little research and I love the story and I love the symbols in it, this image of the shepherd carrying this one sheep on his shoulders, you know, and the Holy spirit coming down and all this flock behind him. But he, he went out of his way to help the one. And I loved what it symbolized. So I, I bought a replica of it and I wore it on my chest for the longest time. So what was interesting about that as a symbol was that I knew what it meant to me. But when I would encounter people because it was so big and out front, uh, one time someone came up to me and said, you know, the Catholic church is uh, just a pedophile ring, right? I can't believe you wear that. You support that. And so that was their reaction to that symbol that I cherished now, you know, mind you. 
And so we had a conversation, but it wasn't one that was getting anywhere. But then a week later, I was at a restaurant and a lady came up to me and she sat down and she said, asked her how she was doing. It was somebody I knew and she shared a really personal story. And we talked for an hour and you could tell she needed to talk. And she, at the end, she touched that cross and she says, I just knew I could come talk to you because I saw that symbol and I just knew that you would, you would listen to me. Thank you for listening to me. And I, it was so interesting how the same exact symbol (laughs) was a source of comfort for one and a source of contention for another. But my feeling about it hadn't changed at all. You know, it was just an interesting thing. And it reminds me of what you're saying about the turban. People see it and they apply their own things to it. And it's like, I don't know. It's just interesting. And symbols are like that all across culture. I mean, the you know, Ku Klux Klan burns crosses, you know, and so it's a symbol for something else to them. It just fascinates me. And I almost yeah. wonder about it. I thought about this one. I remember thinking this as a kid because I never was much into sports or competition. I've never really had a big competitive bone. And I always wondered if this whole us versus them and their colors and our colors doesn't just start as we're when we're children, like we're taught that stuff through our activities. You know, it's them and we're us and they have this flag and we have this flag and it's almost like we're just, it's bred into us to be divisive. It's not like a healthy dose of competition, which I'm all for, but it's almost like the, the nature of competition is just to continually build division with symbols and logos. And I, I work in branding as my main job. So I'm constantly thinking about symbols and what they mean. And, you know, I know how advertising works and a lot of the ways that we're taught, those same principles apply. The psychology of advertising is just applied to sports teams and and this and that and us and them. And I'm like, wow, it's the same exact uh, methodology. Yeah, no, I think I think that's that's exactly right. And, and um, yeah, I think I think about that kind of stuff a lot, too. And And one of the things. Um, that strikes me about what you're saying is um, in that case of the cross um, that you were wearing, like people put their own stuff on you, uh, but it didn't really affect your own relationship with it. And, mm-hmm. and I think that's really helpful uh, as an example, because a lot of times people are like, why, why do you still wear that turban if, if there's so much, if it, if it attracts so much hate. Yeah. Um, and, and they also say like, how do you, how do you deal with the hate that comes your way without getting so angry? And I, and I think that's part of the answer that like people's anger and animus towards me for, for my parents has very little to do with me. Like they don't, they don't know me. They don't right. care about me. They've never in their lives. So it's, it's definitely not personal. It's something else. And it's about their own problems as opposed to, um, as opposed to what I personally stand for or care about. So like, that's, that's a really interesting, uh, parallel that I'm drawing from that, from that story. Yeah. It's interesting that Uh, you bring that up because I mean, it kind of reminds me of, we saw a picture of a dolphin the other day, uh, playing with a red hat in the water and our, I mean, this is, and again, I'm not going to make this a political conversation, but, you know, I don't really support 
the MAGA movement. And so that was a, uh, a marker. Just It was an upside-down red hat. I didn't even read it. But I saw the picture, and my, my thought, this is exactly what happened. I remember it was like a lightning strike in my brain. Oh, look, garbage in the water, which I'm against. An animal's got its nose caught in it, which I'm against. And, of course, it's a MAGA hat, which, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of ideologically against a lot of that, too. So, but it triggered it for me, and it was just a symbol. I immediately, like, like I'm not kidding, like a lightning strike, those thoughts went through my head. And my wife it was sitting next to me. She said, incredible, I had all the same thoughts. And it was just from seeing a red hat. Isn't that crazy? I mean, I was like, this is how symbols just get cut. They cut these grooves in your mind that just get stuck. Right. Right. Exactly. And I think, um, and I think one of the challenges then, and this, this goes back to like what I was trying to say earlier about how we raise our kids. I think the real challenge, um, in recognizing this is how do we, how do we ourselves and how do we raise our kids to live in a way that doesn't see the world as black and white? Mm, yeah. And I think that's, I mean, you can, you can inflect that to like talk about race, but I think it's, I think it's actually about everything, right? Like when we overly simplify reality, uh, that's when we really lose sight of, of what really matters and, and we, we lose our ability to grapple with to grapple with the difference, right? We 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 sort of fall into this us versus them mentality and, and we shut off our, our ability to connect with anything that's outside of us. And I think that's yeah. that's really dangerous. Yeah, I mean talking about all this brings it full circle back to what I, I thought was so sad about that story, you know, about the the, the owners of the Indian restaurant how his mother made him a turban that was red, white, and blue, you know? I mean, that's almost even more sad in the light of symbols, you know? When you look at it that way, you're like, wow, you have to, like, really almost take another symbol and apply it on top of a symbol to make it palatable for a group of people that are so tied up in the wrong view of a symbol. <laughs> it just turns right. into this giant mess. It's so... Wild. That then, I guess that's what we're trying to unravel. All of us, you, and, and what you're doing with your work, uh, and bring another thing back full circle. I mean, the podcast is really interesting. I've I've listened to three. I haven't listened to all of them yet. But is this going to be an ongoing show that you're going to just continue to do going forward, or is this a series, a limited series? Uh, yeah, it's an, it's an ongoing shows, and we'll we'll be, uh, you know, we meet a couple of times every week, uh, and and we bring in. Uh, different ex experts to to help us um, very very much in the spirit of what we were talking about before like let's let's talk about uh, racism as a way to improve ourselves personally uh, and to think about how we can improve society and how we can contribute so so every week we bring in a different guest and, and talk about different aspects of racism to to learn about how it works uh, to learn about how it might be uh, hiding inside of us, uh, and also to learn about about where we can go from here. Now that's great. I'm going to keep sharing it and keep listening to it because it's it's the work of our time. It's it's long work. I mean, this is something that uh, you know, even in talking with immediate family, I can tell you know just from their reaction to the things going on around them that this is not. 
they were even further indoctrinated in uh, a racist culture, you know. Uh, I have relatives still who remember uh, desegregation and hold real deep resentment about that. They have mm. actual anger from from that alone. And I'm like, it's interesting how ingrained it gets. I mean, I have one, I have family who remember, you know, when water fountains were set, were separate and they, the feeling of, uh, something was being done wrong to them when they were forced to share water fountains with blacks. And I mean, it just blows my mind because I can't even comprehend that. And when they say those things, I mean, my eyes get huge. I'm like, wow, you really still feel this way. And you're an right, adult right. now, but you were a child. How is this possible? But there are people out there. And I know on one hand, I go, it's not their fault on one hand. And then on the other hand, I go, but you have, you've lived a life. You have new information. I mean, how can we, how can people still hold on to this? But I, I don't know. I mean, I'm still kind of navigating it. I still don't understand it. I don't know why it's so sticky, uh, but it's sticky. That old racism is sticky. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's an interesting thing about the beast because, um, because we, we try and a lot of times when we try and unpack it, we try and do it through logic and, mm. and a lot, you know, the part, part of what we're seeing is that there, there are, um, well, going back to what I was saying before, like information and, and logic doesn't, doesn't solve all our problems, right? Like we right. have to figure out how to, how to meet things sometimes with our, with our hearts and with our ethics. And, and that's a different kind of conversation. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, you're totally right. Like it, I find, I find a lot of the stuff nonsensical. Um, and it, it, it baffles my mind how anybody could have ever believed stuff like this. Right. Uh, and then on the other hand, then, then I dig in to my own feelings sometimes or my own, um, my own being. And I'm like, Oh, I, <laughs> at some point I believe that or somehow that got inside of me yeah. and and it makes it a little bit more relatable to be like, okay, if, if, if it, you know, if I'm guilty of this or if it's, if, if it's in, in me somehow, then, then I can understand how other people uh, have come to think this way too. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I have to root it out of myself. That's my first job. And, uh, you know, and, and wherever else I, I have any, any influence is ultimately what I've tried to accept is, you know, that I have only so much influence that I have the skills I have and the tools I have. And if I can use those things to help root it out for other people, then I will. And that's how I'm going to do it. Cause there's places that I, I just don't have any effect. You know I mean? It's like a, it's a loud place out there. There's a lot of noise and, uh, this is one signal, but I'll try to use it the best we can. That's all we can all do is do, do our very, very best whenever we, when we were greeted with those types of things. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. I, I'm totally on the same page. And I'm happy. I know this episode's fishing for goodies. Fishbowl sponsor is Brimstone Museum and Henning Cultural Center in Sulphur, Louisiana. I don't know what you look for when you travel, but one of the things I look for when I'm putting together my itinerary is a unique museum or gallery in the city I'm traveling to. I do this almost every time I go to a new city, but if I'm being honest, I'm guilty of not always doing that very thing right here at home in Sulphur, Louisiana. 
That's really a shame because we have one of the most interesting, historically relevant, and culturally rich corners in any city in the country about two minutes from where I'm sitting right now. I'm talking about the Brimstone Museum and Henning Cultural Center. Have you ever really thought about why our city is named Sulphur? They've got a permanent exhibit on the history of the sulphur industry that answers that simple question and more. You really get a full scope of just how important the sulphur mining industry was to the development of Southwest Louisiana and the impact it had on the rest of the world. Yes, the rest of the world. On the same property, right next door to the museum, is the Henning Cultural Center, presenting some of the most interesting, modern, and culturally relevant local art shows I've ever seen. My dear friend Tom Trahan and the Brimstone Historical Society have really worked hard to give us this treasure, and it's a multifaceted jewel that I plan to take advantage of more often. You don't have to wonder what their hours are, or how to get there, or what shows are coming up. Just go to brimstonemuseum.org, like I did, and subscribe to their mailing list right there on the homepage. That's brimstonemuseum.org. Tom will make sure you start getting the announcements for each and every new show at the gallery. But you don't have to wait for the mail to arrive to enjoy this historical local treasure. You don't have to be guilty, like me, of overlooking a local wonder that conveniently sits next to the Grove, one of the most beautiful walking parks in southwest Louisiana. Drop in and say hi to Tom for me. Tour the museum and center, and make sure to tell Tom that you heard about Brimstone Museum on Find the Good News. Now, let's take that dive in the fishbowl. So look, I'm going to walk us into the last part of the show here. Um, we're right at the end. That's been a great conversation. I appreciate all the time you've given me. You've been very generous. Uh, but this part of the show is called Fishing for Goodies. And so the origin of this, I have this big fishbowl, which you cannot see, but it's full of questions. So when I first started Find the Good News, I had this big idea that I was going to be this formal show, and I had all these enlightened questions to ask everybody. <laughs> and what I found very quickly is that I'm terrible at a, a uh, an organized show. I'm much better at just just letting the conversation go where it goes. So we took all those questions and we cut them up and we stuck them in the fishbowl. And uh, so each guest at the end, now what we do is we draw three questions out of that to discuss. And then there's one, one final question at the end of the show that's on the back of a coffee mug that I'm going to send you. So if you're game to do it, I'll draw the questions and we'll get started. Yeah, that sounds fun. I like it. All right. Let's see what the fishbowl offers here. Okay. First question from the fishbowl. What is something new you've learned about yourself in the past year? Hmm. Oh, this is, these are tough questions. I'd like to reframe it, actually, in light of our conversation. Is there anything you're noticing about yourself, especially in the light of everything that's happened in the last, you know, eight weeks, is there anything new that you've seen in yourself? Yeah. There is. So, okay, here's one that's that's maybe more more personal than you were looking for. But um, I had always I had always told myself, and in my head, like sincerely believed um, that family would come first. Mm -hmm. um, and and you know, in a lot of ways, it has. Um, but in this, in this pandemic moment where I'm, you know, my wife is a physician and she's serving COVID patients and I'm home with the girls mostly, um, I'm re realizing how, um, how much more I could have been giving. And so, so that to me was a really interesting, um, discovery. And, you know, yeah. I'm guessing this is not, 
not unique to me uh, that a lot of people in the country are, are sort of figuring out how uh, maybe their behaviors weren't matching up with their priorities. But that was that was a really interesting and and. Uh, kind of painful one for me to to realize and deal with. God, that's so fascinating. I've had a similar revelation because I've always liked to believe in my own little heroic self-taught tale that I was the <laughs> the nurturer of the family, you know, and what I have discovered is that's not true at all. It's actually, it actually is my wife. She's the nurturer. She's the one that the kids look to and that she's the consoler. She's the soothing balm, you know, and I am glad to know that now because I am, I don't have to tell myself. I mean, I may be that on occasion, but she, she's that presence and they need her and I don't need to fill that role. That's hard for me to step out of that role. So I understand that, uh, a, a lot. It's interesting. Good answer. I, I, I think that's fascinating. It's been a good time to discover new things about ourselves, I think. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so here's sure. your next question. This one's interesting, and I don't know if this is a hard one or not, but let's see what happens. You can spend a day in the life of anyone in history. Who is it? All right, so I'll just say the first person that comes to mind, which which is probably too revealing of my... <laughs> of my immature mind, but uh, uh, I would say Greg Popovich. He's my uh, he's the coach of the San Antonio Spurs. Yeah. So like getting to be, yeah, all all that stuff, and he's got this incredible, um, incredible mind, but also like he's a political activist, and he doesn't uh, he doesn't mince words. He's he's pretty transparent about. Uh, his commitment to values. Um, and so, yeah, he's, he's the first person that came to mind. I think that's actually really interesting. I don't know if you ever watched it, but when I was a kid, there was a show called quantum leap and the guy would jump through time and he got to live in the body of a person you know, from history. And uh, I always thought it was a great show because <laughs> the people he would jump into weren't these like, you know, one like Gandhi or, you know, Nelson Mandela. It was always like these sort of, right real people doing real things out in the world. And I, I think that's a great answer because you go, how do you navigate that person's day? Right. I mean, all of a sudden you've got their problems and their blessings <laughs> that go along with right, it. Right. And it would probably be a lot of fun, but it would probably be a, uh, an exhausting yet exhilarating <laughs> experience. <laughs> yeah, totally. All right. <clears throat> so this, I don't know this, you might be, you might already be doing this. So this is the last question. If all jobs paid the same, what would you choose to do? Uh, um, yeah, you're right. I, I really enjoy my, my personal setup. But if all jobs paid the same, being a park ranger, maybe that's like not a – I'm trying to think of – so maybe it's because I've been cooped up in our apartment in New York City too long. But, uh, yeah, being outdoors now is like where my – Yes. Where I really get my solace. Um, so I'm trying to think of something that would let me be outdoors as much as possible, and that's – God, yeah, that's, that's a. That's if you could fine. see me right now, I'm breaking my face, smiling over here. That's actually <laughs> one of my secret dream jobs. As no lie, really? I love. I mean, it's so funny because I talk about it all the time. If I could have taken another path, I, I go, yeah, I probably would have enjoyed being a park ranger. I really would have loved that. I think just the, the outdoors and in in a beautiful park taking care of it and learning the seeing the seasons and just getting to know the the wildlife and and plant life what a great great imagination exercise that is for me it's not not going to happen but 
<laughs> I get that, yeah. man. I'm on board with it. <laughs> All right. So That's really awesome. Here's the last question, and this is on the back of a a sunny, bright yellow coffee mug that we're going to send you for Find the Good News. Uh, the last question is, did anything good happen today? Oh, yeah, always. Um, I would say the best thing that happened today um, is um, my wife came home from work um, from the hospital and brought me home some delicious dinner. And I am so excited to eat it because I haven't eaten yet. And, um, yeah, that's uh, yeah some, some good dinner, some good food, the little joys in life. That is the little joys, man. That's what it takes. Sometimes just reframing that question is a big help to me. You know, we used to say, how was your day or what happened today when we'd have family time? And just reframing it to, did anything good happen today helped us count our blessings, you know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, I appreciate your time and you've got, you've got dinner waiting, so I don't want to hold you up, but I really do appreciate your time. I'm, I'm really thrilled, uh, to have had this conversation. I've actually learned a lot and I've got a lot to think about too. And I hope that my listeners will have some things to think about and maybe, maybe start to turn their wheel a little bit too. I mean, everybody's turning at their own pace, but I hope this was, uh, the kind of conversation that'll get some gears turning. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. This was I enjoyed this conversation a lot too. So really, really thoughtful and, and fun. So you can check the podcast out. It's Becoming Less Racist, Lighting the Path to Anti-Racism with Dr. Simran Jeet Sin. And follow him on Twitter. He's got some really thought-provoking posts and uh, keep you up to date on what's going on, especially in this category of conversation that we just had. I'm more thankful every moment that I found. Thanks for listening to my Beacon Series conversation with Simran Jeet Sin. If you'd like to follow his good work, make sure to visit the links in the show notes. If you found something of use in this conversation, consider helping me spread the good news by supporting Find the Good News at patreon.com slash findthegoodnews. I thank you for pressing play and for syncing up with this good news signal.